0: the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, well, it is great to be with you guys tonight. Um, a couple weeks ago, we started uh, a new series going through the Patriarchs um, and kind of trying to tell an abridged story of Genesis, effectively. Um, and so this is going to be part two of that series. Uh, and if you wanted to think of uh, this series almost as like a TV show, uh, sometimes there are episodes that uh, drastically push the story forward, kind of like a, a season finale. And other times there are more character focused episodes during which not much progress is gained, but we get to spend some time with characters and we get to know them better. Um, but if you didn't have all of the episodes, the finale wouldn't matter as much. So the chapter after this week's passage is like a season finale. It's just one of the biggest chapters of the Bible, one of the most poignant. Um, and this week is building to that. So, yeah, it's just kind of part of that structure. But uh, before we get to this week's episode, it's worth recapping what we've seen so far. So at the very beginning of this, about nine generations removed from Noah, God called Abram and told him to leave his country of, the country of his fathers and travel to the land uh, that God would grant him. God would make him a great nation, he told him, uh, and make him a blessing to others and his future generations a blessing to the entire world. And also that he would curse those who sought to harm Abram. So Abram trusted God and left with his wife, Sarai, and orphaned nephew, Lot. He not only left his home, but his gods too. While there was a pantheon of powerful gods uh, that were to be worshipped by Abram's people, The common folk gravitated towards more minor gods that were tied to the geography that surrounded them, familial ties, um, or that had been adopted by their cities. Um, By leaving, he is effectively uh, removing himself from the jurisdiction of these gods. And now he must rely fully on this newfound god to be his only god as he travels. And what a travel it was. After traveling 400 miles from, uh, thereabouts, um, from the west to the east, um, they come to the land of Canaan, where God told Abram that this was the land that he would give to his offspring. So Abram built an altar and worshiped God. But there was trouble in paradise. A famine came into the land that was so severe that it drove Abram and his family down into Egypt. While there, Abram became afraid that Pharaoh might try to kill him as a part of a scheme to get Sarai for himself. So Abram concocted his own plan to pass Sarai off as his sister so that they might both survive and escape. Unfortunately, the plan horribly backfired when the Egyptians, having been told that Sarai was Abram's sister, took her to be part of Pharaoh's harem. God, though, was gracious to Abram and Sarai, however, and caused a great plague to come down on Pharaoh and his house. So Pharaoh finds out that Sarai is Abram's wife and effectively says, dude, what is wrong with you? And sends him away so the play can end. That pretty much catches us up to today. So what we're gonna be going through is chapters 13 and 14. I won't be reading it all. I'll be summarizing some of it, uh, but I will be reading the first part starting at verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, Now Abram was very rich with livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place that his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to stop there for a second. It's easy to miss the tension because it's kind of glossed over and only in one verse but I'm pretty sure we've all experienced something kind of like it, Uh, whether it was with our parents when we were young or with our spouse or some other way. We've all experienced that super long, really awkward car ride after you know you done messed up. And Abram is living that right here, except a hundred times worse because this travel isn't just a couple hours, it's a few weeks. And he left his wife to get taken into the harem of Pharaoh. So let's be frank, he deserves every minute of this. But that's not the only relationship that needed to be rectified, as we see when we get to verse 4. Abram had been called to Canaan by God, but we never saw God tell him to leave it when the famine comes. But Abram goes. And while in Egypt, we never see Abram reach out to God in any way, and instead acts as basically selfish and a coward. But God is still faithful to him. Now Abram gets to kind of get a restart by retracing his steps and returning to the very first altar he built and recommuning with God. I'd be curious to know what's said there, because it seems to have a profound effect on how Abram acts through the rest of these next couple chapters. And we'll begin to see that in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling there for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and, because, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kin. Is, it not, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And so Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, which was well watered everywhere, like a garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot headed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, While Lot settled among the cities and the valleys and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord." So we're going to stop there. It's sort of wild to pause for a second to think about that these recent transplants who had been who traveled 400 miles and then went down in Egypt and back had just amassed enough livestock by this point that the land can no longer sustain them. Like the indigenous people who had been living there for a very long time, it's just they're kind of tossed off as an afterthought. Like, yeah, the Canaanites were there too. But these two guys pff, can't handle them. So they have a lot. God has blessed them richly already. But this is where we begin to see Abram act a little different than the man that we saw in Egypt. Instead of trying to manipulate his circumstances and get out ahead, he instead confronts the problem and negotiates generously with his nephew. Then there are a couple interesting things at play here. It would be customary for Abram to be the one to be able to pick where he goes since he is the head of the family and the elder let alone the fact that Abram has seemingly taken Lot under his wings for years. But instead of demanding his rights, he defers to Lot and allows him to choose where he could go. Which is kind of interesting because Abram is effectively offering up part of the promised land. Lot can effectively take anything that he pleases. So Abram effectively rejects two different sets of rights that would allow him to take what he wanted. So Lot... Taking advantage of the situation, looks around and sees um, the. Uh, he looks around and sees the Jordan Valley, which is basically the best plot of land that he can see, and decides to settle there. As the passage said, this valley was irrigated by streams that didn't have the risk of running dry and was full of abundant greenery. Now, if you visit Israel, it's kind of amazing to see kind of the the different biomes that show up within the size of. know, New Jersey, because in one little portion you're in just the most arid desert, and then all of a sudden you're in something that looks like South Dakota, and then all of a sudden you're in the tropics, and it's just condensed. So it's not insane to think that they're standing on top of a hill, and he's looking around at South Dakota, and then looks down and sees the tropics and says, I'm going there. And so he does. Needless to say, Lot got the good stuff. But the narrator of this passage really wants us to know that Lot made the wrong choice by dropping Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness by name. Instead of residing in a part of Canaan, the promised land, Lot moves himself entirely out of it and out from the blessing and his uncle for a short-term gain. So how does Abram process this? We see in verse 14. So Abram moved his tent and came, er, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is by Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So before the Lord appears to Abram, though there must have been a moment that kind of stunk for Abram. Not only had he just effectively lost his surrogate son, um, but he sort of stabbed him on the back in the back on the way out too. But then God reveals himself and reiterates his blessings towards him as well as adding to it that this land, although perhaps not as initially enticing as the land that Lot took, will be his and will be kept by his innumerable offspring. This is a bold claim to make for a man who doesn't have a child. God then instructs Abram to walk the borders of the land through the ancient, uh, and throughout the ancient world to walk the borders uh, of a piece of land is effectively to lay claim to it. And it would be something that uh, ancient kings would do. And so finally, with all of these blessings, we see that Aaron builds an altar and worships God, which is an appropriate response given all that he is told and is shown. And that brings us to chapter 14, which is related in some major ways to the previous chapter, but I'm going to summarize verses 1 through 13 because they are wildly convoluted and it's just going to be easier this way. (laughs) So effectively, they say this, there are four major kings in the east and five vassal kings in the west by Abram, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's where Lot lives now. It appears that these vassal kings decided uh, that they wanted to be free from the major kings and probably their taxes, and rebelled, causing the four major kings to march west and just absolutely wreck the minor kings. It got so bad that some of the kings either fell or potentially hid in tar pits during their retreat. It turns out that Lot was taken captive as well, as well as all of his possessions, which we mentioned earlier is a lot. Which brings us to verse 14 of chapter 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been captured, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. He served and <clears throat> he and his servants and defeated and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought them back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So once again, Abram doesn't look like the guy we saw in Egypt. Instead of cowardice, Adam leads a dare, or Abram leads a daring attack against a force that five kings themselves couldn't defeat. This is kind of, if you see the parallels, a precursor to the story of Gideon. Roughly 300 men at night attack, and with God's help, and God effectively wins the day for them. Remember, part of God's blessing from before was that he would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who cursed him. And God comes to Abram's aid once again. And Abram, who in the previous scene had been taken advantage of by Lot, still readily comes to his aid, even at the great risk of personal cost. And we see the fallout of all of this in verse 17. And after, after his return from the the defeat of the four major kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, "'Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands.'" And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram meets now uh, enigmatic priest-king, Melchizedek. There is much debate over who he is and what he did here for reasons that we'll get to in a moment. But most questions boil down to who is this God most high that he is referring to? Some have argued that he is a pagan priest in service of the chief Canaanite God. And this argument isn't without its merits. For one, it seems truly a wild coincidence that Abram all of a sudden runs into a priest of his own God when the priestly order of Yahweh has yet to be established. But more importantly, the Hebrew name that is translated God Most High is almost never used in reference to Yahweh, Abram's God. In fact, God Most High in Hebrew closely resembles the name of the chief Canaanite God. However, I would suggest that Melchizedek was in fact a priest of Abram's God, for several reasons. The first is that Abram accepts Melchizedek's blessing without rebuttal. Abram, now in stride with God, would not tolerate a pagan God who demands monstrous things from his people, receiving credit for delivering him that day. Further, Abram swears by God Most High before the end of the chapter. Second, we see that God Most High is described as possessor, which is, can also be translated as creator of heaven and earth. The description doesn't fit the role that the chief Canaanite god supposedly played. He ruled, but he didn't create. But Yahweh is very synonymous with creation itself. Finally, Melchizedek was viewed throughout ancient Jewish history as a priest of their god. He pops up again in Psalm 110.4, which makes reference to a future messianic figure that will be in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Closer to Jesus' day and outside of a biblical context, um, the Maccabees claimed to be a part of the priestly order of Melchizedek so they could function as both priests and rulers, even though they weren't Levites. Several other more elaborate views on Melchizedek were also found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, where they say he is an angel, he's the Messiah himself, they got a lot of wild stuff there. But, needless to say, with their God. But, back to the Bible, it's the book of Hebrews that correlates Christ with the priestly line of Melchizedek, while also saying that Christ outdoes him. To briefly summarize the argument in Hebrews, the point is that Melchizedek was a priest of God but he wasn't a Levite. In fact, because Abram gave a tithe, that 10% of everything, to Melchizedek, Melchizedek seems to be counted as higher than Abram, and therefore the Levite priests, since they're his kids. Who <clears throat> therefore, even though Christ isn't a Levite, he can be counted as a functioning priest in the line outside of the Levites, even though he surpasses Melchizedek in importance by far. So all that to say, convoluted as it is, there is a rich tradition and biblical continuity which supports that Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh, which is amazing to think that there was at least one person alive during the time of Abram who still remembered the one true God, presumably passed down to him from the time of Noah. So Melchizedek blesses Abram in the name of their God as well as properly attributes Abram's victory to the hand of their God. This proper response can be contrasted with the king of Sodom's response in the final part of this passage, where Melchizedek is effectively the personification of of God himself. In that sense, uh, the king of Sodom is the personification of evil, which we see in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, "'Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself.'" But Abram said to Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. So technically, because Abram was the victor of the battle, he had a right to everything he won. He had a right to all the land and all the wealth and all the people. But the king of Sodom immediately demands a large portion of this, even though he had lost (laughs) previously to these kings, while pretending to offer Abram something that he had no right to give. But Abram doesn't fall for it and returns all of it instead. He does the inverse of what Lot did the chapter before. Instead of taking a short-term gain at the cost of association with and debt to the king of Sodom, the personification of evil, he returns all that uh, he had taken and trusts that God will deliver on his promises to him. It would be God that blesses Abram, not the king of Sodom. So that's the end of the chapter. And the question kind of remains, well, what does that do for us? And primarily the takeaway for us, is that we had the opportunity to learn more about Abram as a person as well as the nature of God. This isn't a parable with a clear moral, but rather a piece of a grand narrative that will make the most sense when we finally put it all together. We've seen that Abram is a wildly imperfect person, but also that God was gracious to him even in his imperfections. We've also seen that Abram, when seeking God, looked like an entirely different man Uh, when he was communing with God and trusting his promises. With that said, I do think there is one direct application that we can pull from the text today, and it's this. Pursue God, even when you haven't been, even when you've been a failure, just as Abram did after Egypt, because God will welcome you. And with him, he will empower you to do his will, just like he did for Abram. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the record of your faithfulness to your people. Um, We ask that you draw us to you, uh, even when we may not have felt like it, even when we haven't been pursuing you. uh, We know that you've been with us. Uh, Draw us to you. Let us learn from you. Uh, Give us the strength to do your will um, and to follow you. In your name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West Seventh Community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license.